everyone, and welcome back to the Vocational Application Podcast, part of the Spring Into Action Initiative at Gordon College in Wenham, Massachusetts. My name is Caitlin Schultz. I'm a member of the initiative team and a third-year biology student here at Gordon, and today I am joined by one of our beloved biology professors, Dr. Dorothy Borse. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Borse. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you. It's an honor. To start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you've been involved in or your focus? Okay, so my PhD is in oceanography and limnology. And for people that don't know, limnology is the study of freshwater. So um, my specialty was small wetlands that dry, like vernal pools. And I know a lot about vernal pools. However, since I've been in Gordon, which is a couple decades now, I have shifted more into uh, environmental science as a whole and trying especially to communicate that to the church, um, issues of environmental justice, climate change, and um, care of creation, as well as to talk to other scientists about how how we might uh, bridge some gaps in communication. Yeah, that's really awesome. That's perfect for the Spring Into Action initiative, as you know. So the big question that we're asking in this podcast is um, pretty obviously applicable to your field, Um, but we're asking everybody, how do you see your discipline contributing to a sustainable future? Well, thanks for asking. And if I was to sort through all the different parts of my discipline, there would be many, many, many places where it interacted with sustainability. I'm an e- a professional ecologist, and the Ecological Society of America is sort of my home professional base, and it's got this really big uh, push on sustainability. But I think as a Christian that my emphasis is on how um, – as Christians, God has called us to care for the environment. But sustainability is really bigger than the environment. Um, typically, people talk about three different prongs. So one is social, one's economic, and one's environmental. So, um, for example, if you take care of the environment, but it comes at the expense of indigenous people, then that's not sustainable. You can't just keep doing that, right? And so, or if you take care of the environment, but it costs so much that people can't pay their bills, then that's also not sustainable, right? So you have to head for that, and I think they call that the triple bottom line when you've got, like, uh, all all the parts. So I envision a world in which we're all much more um, committed to that, but... Uh, I think much of my own work has been trying to tease apart what, how do we communicate the urgency of that, and then how um, how do we come alongside people who don't have scientific backgrounds? Mm-hmm. And as I, I was saying before, that uh, for a lot of problems in our society, We don't actually need more information from scientists. We either need people to disseminate that information or we need 
people to act on that information. But um, so I actually don't do a lot of testing of hypotheses about things in ecology. And I'm okay with that because I do feel like I've been called to this place and to this effort. Um, one of the things I've done that I think mattered more was writing, uh, being lead author on Loving the Least of These, Addressing and Changing Environment. That was published by the National Association of Evangelicals. And um, I'm also an author of uh, environmental science textbook and that kind of thing. But for me, I think sometimes what you need is new breakthroughs in science and sometimes what you need is then to do the things that that either allows you to do, like in applied sciences, or that it suggests might be necessary for a sustainable society. Mm. Yeah, wow. That's really interesting. So you spoke on um, the need to communicate that kind of um, problem going forward. Um, what kind of what kind of urgency do you see with um, the issue of environmental climate crisis and environmental um, problems? Well, I do see a difference between what young people perceive and what older people perceive. Mm -hmm. Often, um, younger people do perceive really significant problems and are most concerned about can they do anything about them. Um, but overall, I think I and my scientific colleagues. Uh, have a much different sense of where the world is at than the people in the world around us. And I know that I feel that keenly because um, I'm using words like the great acceleration and I'm talking about the Anthropocene and I'm talking about planetary boundaries. And if you Google any of them, you'll find out, wow, look at this. There's these big trends or I'm following what the Pentagon is saying about how climate change is a really pressing national security issue. And sometimes I just feel like I'm in a weird world where nobody else has access to the same news or something. Um, yeah, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of tough to to look around and see the information that you're taking in and then yeah. wonder, how are other people not, right. not seeing the same thing that I am? Right, and yeah. I, I will say that some of that is in that bridging. Mm. So, for example, one, one that's just always interesting is that if you look at planetary boundaries and there's the um, Stockholm Resilience Center and that's where they do a lot of that research, you'll see that the amount that humans have altered the nitrogen cycle is this huge thing that scientists who study those kinds of things and general ecologists are very, very concerned about. Mm -hmm. But I've never given a talk where somebody already knew that. Hmm. And somebody even asked me, like, well, everybody's heard of climate change. How come I never heard anything about nitrogen? And I thought, well, trying to explain that the nitrogen cycle is being rapidly messed up and it's really affecting ecosystems all over the world, I don't know if it's not 
interesting or it doesn't have sound bites or maybe it's not controversial, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think that this idea that environmental things are controversial actually is self-driving. And um, if it's not controversial, then maybe people don't want to talk about it. I don't, I honestly do not know. So in your experience with these kind of tougher topics of explaining the nitrogen cycle or why it's, what's so messed up um, about that, do you feel like you've had um, success or have had difficulties with that kind of bridge between the scientific language and and the um, the fact that science might not be interesting to some people? Um, have you found ways to overcome that kind of disconnect there? I think almost anything can be said simply mm-hmm. if you need to. So um, I think the nitrogen cycle can be explained simply enough. I think the biggest um, difficulty that I've had is that people don't want to believe it. Mm. And so um, it's very easy for people to think like, oh, people that are concerned about this are alarmists or they they have a, an agenda. Mm. So, And I have really run into that a great deal. Like, um, I, I was invited to speak one time at a church um, to a group of college students about climate change. And when I was done, the person who invited me said, why would we listen to scientists when they have a mostly godless worldview? Mm. And I was just struck dumb, like, well, you invited me. <laughs> but I think the polarization in our society, the amount that people um, even determine what they will believe about science from affiliation groups, like political groups or uh, religious groups, has really made communication very difficult. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. I think, especially on social media, I see that being a huge issue, is that there's an issue of us versus them mm-hmm. um, from either side. I think that's something, the polarization, and and like you mentioned before, that if it's not controversial, people aren't interested in it. Right. Yeah. And, and that the controversy is often wildly exaggerated, mm. and then it becomes true. Mm. right yeah there isn't really a controversy but if we talk about it and we find the two people that are really upset about it then it ends up being this giant thing that nobody can listen Mm. um and I think the I, I think for me some of the things that have helped have been people with different skill sets that have come alongside scientists so there's this app called I think it's called Cranky Uncle, <laughs> and it's just a humorous game, and it's about climate change. And I feel like I've worn myself out, you know, trying to say this matters and is real. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm ready for the next stage in my own niche, whatever that should be, where I'm useful but not 
mostly trying to say, like, this actually is a real thing and you need to pay attention right. to it. Um, and I, I, so I think there's some hopeful niches out there that are pretty exciting for people interested in sustainability. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, and this, this uh, made me think of that again, that your experience with a church that invited you to speak um, and how kind of the, uh, the church has maybe not done the best job about prioritizing um, the interest in creation care or sustainability um, or has created a, um, a maybe demonized science in a way? Would you say that that's something that's accurate? I would say that a lot of scientists like myself are not well received in the church mm. and have our own stories. That, I think, is more the case in some denominations than others and in some parts of the world than others. Um, but that idea that scientists have a mostly godless worldview, that person was really bold in just saying that, but there's a lot of people that use scientists with a capital S as a group that I am not in that is probably has an agenda that's negative. You know, it, it was sort of like... All those scientists who said, you know, talking about COVID and how you could stop the transmission, many times they were being shouted over by people who just had no qualifications and no understanding of immunology. And there's no reason you should have listened to that person. And I feel like there's a certain amount of um, no longer listening to people um, the same thing happened with the Flint water crisis Yeah, when a very poor, mostly minority group of people were saying our water does not taste right, it doesn't look right, and they were being told that their lived experience was wrong, mm. that they were just being completely gaslit. And I remember reading an article where a spokesperson for the city said, well, this group of scientists came from the University of wherever and to study the water, and of course they found lead. They study lead in water. They're going to find it everywhere. And I just thought, I feel like I'm living in an upside-down world. Yeah. Where I can, a pundit on TV who knows literally nothing mm -hmm. about water contamination, their voice counts more than a person who studies this with their whole life. Because if you study with their whole life, why would we believe you? You're going to, of course, make stuff up. Yeah. Anyway, I'm ranting. So let's just <laughs> come back from the ranting. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, because is there really I, – I find myself really thinking about all that as well, especially as someone who's entering into the field of biology, it's it can be discouraging, and I I have to really rein in those thoughts and keep myself yeah. from getting too negative about it because right. it's 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 disheartening to see that even though this is like this is something that you that you put your whole life into and you study and it's it's what's it what's it for if if people are just going to dismiss that and I I will say that I think we've crossed. A threshold. I'm hoping that we've crossed a threshold. Yeah. And my experience with different 
demographics is very different. Yeah. And so um, I don't mean that that can't happen, but I don't know that it's as much that way. And and let me just say, 20 years ago when I was coming in to a lot of scientific work, if you went to a secular scientific group and talked about being a Christian, you might not. They wouldn't be mean, but they would be sort of like, that's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And now people are much more interested in how to have a conversation from scientists to whatever groups of people are in society. So I think I think that goes both ways. I think there's an increase in that interest in that bridge. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really important. How do you feel like your position as someone of faith and as a scientist has um, do you feel like that's something that's that's changed as you've seen this increase in wanting to kind of bridge the gap between science and maybe the general population that you talk about in the in the past two decades or so has that has that improved the situation in terms of the barrier that people perceive between science and faith I think that my being a scientist um, has helped me communicate to people of faith mm. and being definitely being a person of faith myself has made me both be very sympathetic and um, and also understand the vocabulary and where people are coming from. Mm. So I, I will say my biggest thing I think I bring to the table in that regard is a deep commitment to treat everybody with respect, even if I strongly disagree with them. Mm. That's, yeah. And I try to model that. I, I try to require that of the people around me. And I think that that is energy well spent. I wonder if the issue of respect and the issue of not listening to others and kind of focusing on your own narrative and being trapped in that own, in your bubble, I wonder if maybe that is more of the problem um, today and like the miscommunications between science and, and people of faith. I think that people are prone to only seek out the voices that they agree with. Um, and I, it, it kind of makes me think that the issues surrounding um, like all environmental crises going on at the moment, I wonder if really the root of a lot of those issues are is just this tendency to human tendencies of being selfish and catering towards your your own interests and not wanting to listen to the interests of others. I definitely think some of that is true. Yeah. And um, I know one time I had a conversation with Kay Cook and she talked about the virtue gap. It's when you know what you should do, the right thing to do, but you don't do it. Mm. But I, I want to be a little bit kinder to people in general because I think that... There's a couple of other things going on. One is that we have just been ex we have just been the guinea pigs in a giant worldwide experiment on social media, mm. and nobody knew what would happen, and nobody knew what things we needed in place in terms of habits or laws or regulation. So when Facebook has 
you know, an algorithm that if you click on one thing, then pops up more extreme points of view on that topic, then you end up in an echo chamber, but you didn't even know you were in it. It's not even like you were being presented with these other points of view and denying them, right? Yeah. And I, so I think that normalizes extreme points of view. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one. I also think that there are some people and companies and groups that have very vested interest in presenting their best interest as uh, the thing that people should be fighting for. So I'm not, I'm not going to name names, but I am going to say like, well, maybe I could. (laughs) No, but but there's companies that have actually poured money into political campaigns and poured money into efforts to misinform people about environmental problems and I think it's pretty important to realize that you as an individual person would have no way to know that that was true, right? Mm. And so I think the third thing is, and you know I've said this to you before, but um, you can't personally start all the programs that need to be started and do what, like, and so I think people should be a little bit gentle with themselves and then also see the moment for what it is. There is such a good moment of opportunity to make the world a better place. Mm. Every place I turn around, there's somebody saying, I can use my skills and do this or that or the next thing. So I want to put out there that um, when a lot of things are changing at once, sometimes the voice of people who want to change it in a more just way has a chance to rise. Where when nothing is changing, it's hard to change, right? Yeah. It's not like, it's like um, the world's changed so fast. And in a way, that's impossible to cope with. But in another way, things are disrupted enough that you can have people supporting themselves, writing about the environment, blogging, podcasting, making games called Cranky Uncle, you know, (laughs) making apps that help you track your carbon footprint, coming up with better laws or talking about just transition. How do we transition to a better economy in a just way? And I just think there's some really exciting opportunities in there. So I don't want to leave anybody discouraged. I feel like I'm watching a sea change. I wish it had come sooner. Mm. And I feel angry that some people prevented it from coming sooner. I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't want people to think there's nothing happening. There's tons happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good encouragement, definitely. I find myself really easily falling into that slope. And it's it's something that's tough to overcome. Yeah, and I, I know when I came... You know, when I was where you were, I already knew a lot of stuff. But then when I was taught in class, I was, at, you know, there's just this feeling of, well, if everybody knows this, why isn't anything being done? And then there were things being done, but I didn't know where they were, or I didn't know how to tap into them. Mm. And I think 
one of the pluses of social media has been it's so much easier to find like-minded people if you do want to make a difference in sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, on that note, is there another um, another or a specific note of encouragement that you would offer to specifically young people, whether they're scientists or whether they're going into the field of, you know, English or economics or anything like right. that? Is there a specific note of encouragement that you'd offer um, for for those of us listening who who maybe feel overwhelmed by this sense of personal responsibility or this sense of there's so much to overcome and there's so much to do? Um, you don't have to save the world. <laughs> and I don't mean you don't have to do useful things, but that should be your goal. I'm useful at this point in a crisis but it's not all on me. Mm. And it is on all of us. So I might lobby that this person who's already going to build a trash solution, build a cleaner one or a greener one, but I am not going to be the one to do that. This is, you know, so we've had that conversation before, yes. but I've said like, I personally cannot like invent a recycling program Somebody could, but that would be the one thing they did, right. right? And the thing I'm doing is teaching and writing and raising a family and all those things. So I feel like it's okay to have limits. It's okay to be mortal. Yeah, absolutely. One of the classes that I took with you, um, Science and Faith, that was um, that made a huge impact on me in my own understanding of how those two worlds combine and it was a way that I had never thought about it before so I would uh, emphasize your impact on individuals because I know personally I I oh, wouldn't have you. gotten to the place that I am without without that class and without that um, new perspective and that new understanding oh, thank uh, you yeah was there any other um, final notes or final things that you wanted to say or that you wanted to address before we close off today I think that achieving sustainability is very difficult, but it's sort of like abolishing poverty mm. in the sense that you still try for it. You still measure whether or not you're succeeding, and you hope you're always moving forward. And I think, I think it's a lofty goal, and I think we as Christians have something to bring to the table. Mm, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Boris. It was lovely to hear your perspective on all of these topics. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of that's course. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, you can join us next time for another episode and another fascinating and enlightening interview with, uh, with a professor here at Gordon. So this is the Vocational Application Podcast of the Spring into Action Initiative. Um, I'm Caitlin Schultz, and we'll see you in the next episode.